welcome to Leto Narrative Dissidents in a very special episode uh, brought to you by one of our backers, Christian Bickley. Thank you uh, so much for your support, Christian. And uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about a, well, we, we could say an obscure game, Outlaws of the Water Margin. Uh, this is a game that was written and released kind of in uh, the late 90s. It is uh, a game inspired by the historical epics of ancient China, 12th century China. Uh, That is the subtitle, Heroic Adventure Roleplaying in 12th Century China. It is written by Paul Mason. And uh, this episode is dedicated to Christian's friends, Nathaniel, Paul, Ben, and Jordan. They are his friends who played Outlaws with, he played Outlaws with back in the day. Yeah, so this is a game even I had not heard of. And that takes a bit because I, part of my regular podcasting is digging up obscure role-playing games to talk about. So it's it's pretty impressive. <laughs> I, on the other hand, have a playtest credit in it. <laughs> so <laughs> Seriously, I do. Um, this okay. is because I used to role-play with Paul Mason in the late 80s and early 90s uh, in South London at the time when a lot of the interesting bits of the UK role-playing scene were going on in, in South London. Paul had, like many of us, like myself as well, come up through fanzines um, and then got a job as assistant editor or deputy editor on White Dwarf when White Dwarf was a role-playing magazine rather than a Warhammer magazine. Um, didn't move up to Nottingham when the whole transition to Warhammer began. Stayed in London working as a uh, journalist and um, editing Games International, which was a board, an early board games magazine, um, and living underneath Ian Marsh, who had been the editor of White Dwarf at, at the same time, and playing a lot of role-playing games. And I used to game with them on a regular basis, playing an early version of Outlaws of the Water Margin, also a lot of Empire of the Petal Throne, um, usually with... Jamie Thompson, who was another ex-editor of White Dwarf, who had preceded both Ian and Paul, um, and Dave Morris, who I mentioned in the Apocalypse World episode, who um, one of the great designers of solo game books, one of the great pioneers of doing interesting and in some cases mad things with the form, who had also been the best-selling author in the UK in about 1990 or 1991, for writing a lot of Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles books. Um, and Hello. these... <laughs> I, I have to interrupt when you say we were doing all this back in the 80s. I can only picture you with the big kid and play eraser head haircut <laughs> and like the block color 80s clothes, like the big parachute pants. It was exactly right, like that, right? It was Thatcherite London. It was gray. <laughs> Right, and yeah, we're, we're going to come got... back to that because there's elements of that in this game. Pretty much, well, I was I was a student. I was out marching every weekend, going, you know, what do we want? Grants, not loans. When do we want them? Ooh, sometime soon would be nice. <laughs> um, we were very polite. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I could go on a complete digression at this point about my uh, student years. I won't. Um, but they were fantastic role playing sessions. Paul was one of the pioneers of. New thinking in in role play. He had this fantastic fanzine called Imazine, in which he put forward ideas of where we could take this art form. It was clear to him that it was an art form, 
um, he was one of the champions of what became the the urtext of the the British new role play scene and became one of my core books for design principles, which is Keith Johnstone's Impro, which is actually a book about improvisational theatre. And it's probably the best book about games design ever written, even though it's not actually about games design. Hmm. Um, I recommend it very, very highly. Is it in print? It is in print, yeah. It's 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 one of the core texts of improvisational theatre and improvisational comedy. Um, uh, John Stone was one of the people who... He was one of the angry young men of British theatre in the in the fifties and sixties. Founded a lot of that. Founded a lot of the the improv movement. Came up with a lot of its kind of core rules. Um, and it's just it's a great book. And Paul wrote a lot about that and was inspired by that. And what I find kind of interesting about Outlaws of the Water Margin is that not there's not an awful lot of that in there. Um, Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which is my game inspired by Keith Johnstone, is pure improv. Um, Water margin is is rather less so, but Paul was inspired, I believe, to write uh, Outlaws of the Water Margin by seeing this TV series in the seventies and eighties, which had been made in China, called Water uh, the Water Margin. Um, which I never saw. I think there were two series of it, but it was you know TV budgets rather than movie budgets. But that kind of heroic fighting that one become accustomed to later on seeing films of Soy Hark and the Shaw Brothers and, and as that stuff starts to filter through properly into the West. Um, but at the same time, it's got all the cultural values. The other influence, I think, is actually one of the other four great books of, of Chinese literature. And I, that's not my term. That's the official term. There are four great terms. Outlaws of the Water Margin, uh, Journey to the West, which is the monkey legends, basically yeah. the great monkey story. There was also a monkey TV series hugely influential certainly in the uk um and i can't remember the other two <laughs> Jeez, i've got them written right. down somewhere um they are less heroic there's less sword fighting in them i think right. you are flying clouds um but also certain movies were starting to come through the soy hark movies um zoo warriors of the magic mountain um and chinese ghost story oh it's great it's great I've it's heard it's great but i never yeah, I never found it. Yeah. Even oh, well. when there was a Chinese movie uh, store in Naperville in the early 2000s, and I would go there and look for Wuja films that I'd read about in Feng Shui and find them. And I'm like, ooh, Heroic Trio, that's supposed to be good. Ooh, Drunken Master, neat. <laughs> so, but I I never found Zoo Warriors of the Magic Mountain. It's, it's I think sad. it was in, on Netflix. Mm. I think it was on yeah. Netflix in the UK a couple of years ago. Oh well, Netflix UK. Pff, that's every. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> that's just like it's like another country over there. Um, uh, the uh, the other two of the four classic novels, by the way, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms and of course, Dream, yes. uh, Dream of the Red Chamber. <laughs> never even heard of that one. But I am not yeah. a an expert on Chinese history or Chinese literature. And having known uh, Paul Mason, was he one? Uh, the 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 thing that I in in our in our framework for Luda narrative dissidents, mm -hmm. stage one is what does this game do? And my take on that is it emulates Chinese pop culture versions of this Song Dynasty epic, or possibly 
sort of Western translations of revisions of that epic. So it's like Mason's scholarship meets Mason's fandom, but there are all these layers where it's like, okay, so Paul Mason is a British guy watching an English translation of a modern TV show based on this Song Dynasty legend. And I'm like, and there's a, there are a lot of layers in that onion, but uh, I think it's, it's probably, that can, could be a positive as much as a negative if you are a fan of rich cross-cultural, uh, uh, what would you call that? Cultural interpenetration. Uh, yes. If you, I don't think it's cultural appropriation. Yeah, I mean that's well, that's the the accusation that could be leveled. If you're Edward Said, this could be troubling. But yes. but I mean the but, Orientalism challenge is: does it show every part of everything you know east of Turkey as sort of this this single monoculture? And certainly this isn't that. Mason's like okay. This is about China, specifically this time in China, specifically this vision of this time of China. And, you know, it, it's very specific about what the water margin story is. Yes, it's very firmly set in, I mean, it's, it was written during the Ming Dynasty about the Song Dynasty. And it's not just very firmly fixed in the Song Dynasty. It's fixed in a 13-year period, which is when the heroes were supposed to be active, and uh, the, the outlaws of the water margin. And it's worth talking a bit about, a bit about who they were, basically. They're the kind of the Chinese equivalent of Robin Hood, or perhaps more accurately, almost King Arthur, because they are absolutely heroes. Um, but it's a collection of folktales that came together under a single author authorship, three or four centuries after they are supposed to have originally happened. Um, so it's this disparate group of stories and disparate group of characters coming together with common purpose. And the common purpose is usually that these were honorable men from all, they're all men, um, from all walks of life, from, you know, the greater society right down to, to you know, boat, boat builders and, and butchers. Um, but they've all been laid low by interactions with corrupt bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. almost entirely um that it is the state that has that has demeaned them usually through corruption um and they have become outlaws uh, which in the game pretty much if you're an outlaw you're a hero um you're one of the 108 heroes and they are named in the back of the book uh, and it's very very tightly focused on that this is nothing like a lot of the games that were coming out about the same time I don't know when Paul started work on the water margin. We were playing it, I would guess, late 80s, early 90s. Wow. When I was running Hogshead Publishing, I approached Paul about possibly publishing it, and that, to my guess, would be probably 98 or 99, because I can date it by which office we were in at the time. Uh, we were sharing an office with uh, Pro Fantasy Software, which became Pelgrane Publishing. And I remember having the folder there and it didn't come to anything because i wanted to make some editorial changes but because it still felt at that point like an early 90s role-playing game and uh, i asked paul if he'd make a bunch of changes and he disagreed and we went on separate in exhaustion ways and yeah um yeah. I, I don't know if i should say at this point that that's the same reason i turned down unknown armies 
because it looked like <laughs> early 90s instead of no no i i asked for another editorial pass on it and uh i think times declined we were already yeah we were pre-exhausted probably mm. um, i don't blame you well so what we've got then the the version i have lists the copyright as 1998 Mm-hmm. And yep. it is it is very much an artifact of its time, which is something I think we've decided we're going to get into later. But before we do that, uh, you know, be, before we sit up on the porch with a glass of country time ranting at the youth about how it was a different time in the 90s, you weren't there. Um, what I want to do is kind of dig into the mechanics on this, which mm-hmm. it the mechanic is funky it is the 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 way it works there are there's a target number of difficulty but the higher that number is the easier it is so 12 is uh just a mortal lock because you're trying to equal or get under it on two six-sided dice so you can't fail at difficulty 12 but you also don't want but it but counterintuitively, you don't always want to roll low because if you do succeed, your degree of success is determined by your highest die. And the higher that is, the the better your success. So you've got this kind of price is right dynamic. You want to get as close to your ease number without going over it. So it's the neat thing about that is that it's self-stabilizing hard tasks inherently limit the success. But the part I I really liked about it and thought was not utilized nearly to sufficient advantage was that there was this big pile of skills and in true 90s fashion, Mm -hmm. they're subdivided and cost different things and apply at different times and some are very broad and some are very narrow and it's fiddly to the extreme Mm. but you could apply multiple skills to a role and the way the skills work is they raise the difficulty and remember higher difficulties are easy so if i have a skill where i'm like okay i can just use my coordination on that then my coordination gets added to the target number and makes it a couple points easier but it's like oh I'm coordinated, but also it'll help that I'm very strong and also that I'm an expert at kicking things. And now I've got three factors involved. And what occurred to me, and again, the other thing we're going to do after we reminisce at immense length about the 90s, I'm sure, (laughs) is talk about how we would rework this game for 2021. Uh, and, And I'm like, what I would do is just make it be just like, yeah, see how many skills you can bolt onto your actions. See how much of your character you can get firing on this. You can if you can find a way to get your kicking skill and your social class and your knowledge of Chinese classics involved in your attack, you will be unstoppable. And I think that could be really fun because it plays into the crazy chaos of creativity that mm-hmm. role players are known for when they are trying to describe their character clobbering somebody. 
Mm-hmm. It's like almost like a fate kind of system with aspects. Uh, I think. I mean, that's what it sounds like. Is that kind uh, of you? Vibe? You don't define them though. They are. Okay. It's just this huge laundry list. They're weird. Um, well, no, they're not weird. They're 90s. Yeah, I would agree, with, especially with the 90s fiddliness. The the combat chapter in particular is very lengthy. And yeah, when we get into how to redesign it, that would be like one of the first things uh, uh, I would be looking at. Because like the core system is so simple, yet they add so many conditional things to it. Special uh, cases. Yeah. Uh, the 90s was before we'd learned that you should just, <laughs> that if you see a special case, you should just put a bullet in its head and leave it by the side of the road. You mm-hmm. should just, they should be able to find a modern game designer by fi- by following the trail of murdered special case <laughs> rules. But, I mean, it, it's worth saying, the 90s were a different time, we are going to come onto this. There were fewer role-playing games. There were, you know, every art form is built on what came before. There were fewer points of reference. Mm-hmm. There were fewer things that one could look at. Probably the most avant-garde role-playing game was was Amber Diceless or or Over the Edge, um, and we were still using those kind of as touchstones. Wait, can you believe there's a game where you just say what your character? can do there's no skill list man there's no skill list you're in the twilight zone <laughs> it's I, I was still i am still basing stuff off you know the old west end ghostbusters um but yeah it was simply fewer points of reference and also in the uk the small press stuff was not coming through we weren't we weren't getting that you know what we got basically was that games workshop who at the time were a games distributor and also republisher, but they were the company that was bringing stuff in from the states. If they thought it was commercial, they'd bring it in. If you know they weren't interested in little, you know, Xerox home homebrew systems, of which there were a few. I had to. Uh, I didn't see an awful lot of stuff that I'd heard of, but I only ever found it when I came over to Gen Con in 1989 for the first time, and was running around going, "Oh my God, it's Greeks and Crawdads! I finally have a copy." Um, and then discovered that it's not the game I was told it was. But more of that another time. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think there's some really interesting mechanics in here, not just for the time. I think it holds together really well. I think a lot of the kind of, some of the, the special case stuff, it adds flavor. It's mm-hmm. all there to add flavor. And what the mechanics do really well is capture that flavor, again, not just of this kind of vague Orientalism that lots of other games were doing at the time. There was an awful Eric Wujic thing for palladium generally it was just kind of oh it's all the far east just all in one massive great blender and paul he eviscerated that in summer review was that ninjas and super spies he may have done a historical one as well but yes yes paul just ripped it apart he he loathed (laughs) that book um this is it's it's very focused on not just getting the details of the fiction right, but also getting the tone right and enabling the players to get it right as well. And he makes a point at one point of, of it suggesting that players read through stuff or possibly read the novels to get the tone. But I think the mechanics, just playing with the mechanics, you get the ability to understand how these heroes function, what they can do and how they can do it mm-hmm. in a way that, and this won't be necessarily important to a lot of players, but in a way that is relatively true to the, the fiction. And this was one of his, his design tenets, that you start with your fiction first, work out what it is that you're trying to model, 
design mechanics to model that. Um, if you can, I don't know if imagine Imazine, um, Imazine, I-M-A-Z-I-N-E, some people pronounce as Imazine, which you could read it that way, but it was a pun on the, the magazine that TSR UK had produced, which was Imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a fanzine form of that. Um, if there are copies still out there on, on the net for, for download, there's still some really interesting stuff in there. Also some very embarrassing stuff by me in the letter column. I was, how old was I? Old enough to know better. I was still basically a student or just after a, after student years. Um, I wrote a lot of crap. Well, everyone has a past, James. <laughs> yeah, as, as a friend of mine says, um, as a writer, just accept that your first million words will be rubbish and just get them out of the way as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a different number for everybody. Some people have a, but I, I have pictured the process of becoming a good writer as like mining and you have to break through this crust of terrible fiction or terrible whatever you're creating before you can get down to where it's good. Oh God, I did nine issues of a fanzine that I won't even tell people the name of anymore. It's so embarrassingly bad. <laughs> nice. Yep. Okay. That's, that's okay. your slag heap. That was you <laughs> uh, developing your juvenilia. And the learning, good learning the trace. The good news is that people today, all that shit's on itch and archived <laughs> forever, and uh, or is is taking place in their Twitter feed or Facebook posts. So yeah, I mean, you think you think we have it hard in that our embarrassing youth excesses are can be found with you know digging. The the youth of today, their embarrassing excesses can be found with a few keystrokes. All right. Um, should we talk about Bad Joss? Yeah. Ah, yes. Let us talk about Bad Joss. Yeah, that uh, did stand out to me as a very interesting uh, mechanic. Um, I also do want to say, though, just in general, this is a uh, for the, the the listeners at home. Uh, if you can find the PDF, I mean, good luck. It's I, I have no idea. I, I do not believe this game is distributed anywhere. So you have to know someone. Uh, we were sent the the. The PDF by uh, Christian again. Thank you. Um, and it's divided evenly, about a hundred pages of uh, mechanics, and well, actually about one hundred and twenty pages of mechanics, and then the remaining 70, 80 pages of setting material. It's about it's one hundred ninety six page PDF, uh, just to give you an idea of the scale of this game. It's pretty big. I I believe it is up. It is up there on the net. Um, there is a PDF within a Google document, which you can download. Um, yeah. And and it's it's free. And I will say now that I have paid much more money for much worse games than this. It's not complete. It's clearly a, a an abandoned work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are bits where the, the section headings just tail off into a, into a list of things late, clearly to be fleshed out later that that never were. But it is it is complete and it is playable in the form that it's up. Uh, yeah, it see. I mean, it's laid out. It has art, but it, it does seem to be like almost ready for publication. Like they, but there's there's it's designed, um, but there's no editing credits listed. So I don't know if it was a hundred percent ready for publication yet. But clearly, well, this is not like a fantasy heartbreaker. Y'all this, know. What I have to weigh in about (laughs) is the use of the future conditional tense. (laughs) It's another game where every 
page, I'm circling will because it's like, if you do this, the spirits will answer instead of if you do this, the spirits answer. It could be 180 pages if they'd just taken out every (laughs) instance of the future conditional tense. Mm -hmm. I could go on and on and I am I am holding myself back. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's got it. It's got the future conditional plague. Um, I'm gonna say I'm I'm pretty sure it was laid out using PageMaker because it was the late right. '90s and mm-hmm. all used to use PageMaker. Actually, used to use wasn't Quark. There was another one before that. Yeah. Um. But uh, but yes, it's the layout is rudimentary, but it's functional. All the information's there. It's clearly laid out by somebody who understands layout. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a bad looking game. It's very readable. Uh, Compared no... to some of the White Wolf stuff from the 90s, I mean, at least <laughs> he doesn't have white letters on gray uh, texture, mm-hmm. which I may have mentioned before. But we were going to do Bad Joss. Yes, um, yes. Sorry, Bad Joss. Sorry, so Bad Joss in the game is one of the limiting factors placed on players, and the other is the energy stat. When I was looking at the thing where it's like, wow, you could just... If you were a very creative and imaginative and agile thinker, you could just pile stat upon stat upon stat upon stat into a task and knock it out of the park. But of course, Paul Mason anticipated this and gave you an energy stat and you cannot add more bonuses than you have energy. And when bad things happen to you and you get tired, your energy diminishes, so you you become less effective and less able to dogpile events into submission with a pile of skills. So that is sort of the mechanical chain around the character's throat, and the narrative chain around the player's throat is Bad Joss, which is... At at one point, he says, this is not just a stick for the GM to beat the players with. And until he'd written that, I'd like, this kind of does look exactly like a stick for the GM to beat the players with. But he's like, if you're the GM... Not that there's anything wrong with that. He's like, if you're the GM, you have all the sticks you need. No, what this is for is to reinforce the superstitious behavioral norms of the time. If you do certain things, if you act certain ways, if you give in to individual personal motivation, you will accrue bad joss. And this is just like bad luck. And there are assorted ways of dealing with it. One is if you hit, if you roll snake eyes, you immediately have to make a bad joss roll. And Mm -hmm. that will either be some misfortune that happens right away, which could range from, you know, you embarrassingly soil your clothes up to getting hit by lightning, or else a a more long-term thing where it's like, oh, well, you get sick. Oh, there's a social misunderstanding. And all the bad Joss effects are very easily dismissed as, oh, these are just things that happen, man. It's not like you have bad Joss, the skies open up, and angels descend to kick your ass. It's, you have bad Joss, so your sandal strap breaks and you twist your ankle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's stuff that, it's it's just bad luck. Mm-hmm. And so if you act like 
a very individualistic person, if you act like you're from the West and, you know, believe in frontier spirit and sort of self-promotion, you will be racking up all kinds of bad jobs. If you act like a Song Dynasty uh, citizen who every relationship has someone on top and someone on the bottom and know your place and stick to your place and enact your role correctly, then, you know, Bad Joss will will just uh, glide off you. Or you'll get it for being in the wrong place at the wrong time because the Feng Shui was bad or because you buried Grandpa in an inauspicious location. That's the other way you get Bad Joss. But it it is, again, another limiting factor. It's like, yeah, you can, you can get this short-term advantage by being motivated, but boy, mm-hmm. yeah, the nature of reality doesn't much care for your individualism. Bad Joss is great. I really like what Bad Joss does, and it fits in. There's a little suite of mechanics, and some of them are exactly what you'd expect to get in a game set in China. There's the, the face mechanic, and there's you know, the reputation stuff and, and things like that. But it's all done with a certain finesse to it. it it's not used as kind of a, a blunt sword. It's well integrated within the characters, within the character sheets. Um, it's clever. It feels clever. There's an elegance and a deftness to it that really works. The version I played, what, 30 years ago, um, <laughs> at least, was not this version. This version is several versions further on it it is more polished it is cleverer it is better integrated um it's i i really like what it does to to bring that atmosphere out mechanically um i think the tone of it is is it's well written it's well expressed paul can be wordy at times and it shows that it hasn't been through a proper editing process there's a lot Mm -hmm. of repetition there's a lot of i mean this is one of the reasons and for publication, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be altered in there or integrated or, or just restructured. Mm-hmm. But you read it through once and you've basically got it and it, come, it comes together. And you've, I certainly felt on a single read-through, I could run this. I'd probably need to refresh on certain bits, but I felt confident that I could capture the tone that the creator was after. And that's pretty big. That's not nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's not hard for me to imagine an alternate universe where this sort of mechanic, this uh, compact roll 2d6, try to get right up to the difficulty but not go over, became the default in the same way that d20 is the default now. D20 is maybe a little simpler. It's probably... It's probably a bit simpler than this, but this is not baffling and puzzling. And I can see how, like the D20 mechanic at the core of the D&D 3 edition reboot, this is a mechanic that is probably pretty robust. It can take a punch. It can take a lot of house ruling without breaking. You could vary it a lot of different ways to make it fun and interesting. It doesn't feel like a, a new dice mechanic for the sake of being a different dice mechanic. It feels like it has been carefully designed for a purpose. So, Indeed. James, you, uh, one thing that I did note in the in the sort of copyright page of this PDF, 
is that this is based on another system, Dave Morris's uh, Quiden. Um, and Quiden is uh, a Japanese uh, uh, set of ghost stories. And so it's about, I guess, that sort of ancient Japanese folklore and fantasy and, and that, that sort of thing. So uh, I could not find much information about that. Uh, uh, looking online, apparently it was mentioned in an issue of White Dwarf in 1983. Uh, <laughs> or... Is so, oh my god! Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Uh, there, there is, yeah. So, do you, do you recall anything about this system? Because so apparently, this is not the first RPG that ha- it was uh, wow. has this system. It was taken Quidon from. Why Don is before my time? Which yeah, that yeah. Old. It's I, I don't remember it. I don't remember ever coming across Quidon. I've come across some of Dave's work on. RPGs set in Japan because he wrote the book that was going to be the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay First Edition Japanese source book, basically, which I think was that wasn't set in Yamato. I think it was set in Nippon, um, being the name of the. It was the eighties. We didn't understand a lot of stuff at that point about cultural sensitivities. Quite, um, I don't. No, but the bell it's ringing, and I could be completely wrong on this, is Dave's Tirikelu system, which is his mechanics for Emperor of the Petal Throne, which is a really nice system. Oh, one other member of the group I met, um, I should have mentioned, Dr. Patrick Brady was um, an occasional player. He went on to be the lead designer on Guardians of Orders, Tecumel version of the Emperor of the Petal Throne game system and, and, and world. I could be completely wrong in this, but I think there may be an overlap with, with Tirakelu. But Kwaidan itself, I don't know. Um, I, let me footnote that. I do talk to Dave from time to time. He was my best man. Um, and uh, is, uh, I think, godfather to at least one of my children. It's, it's so, interesting <laughs> you mentioned these you, other... you got to like, think about it. All right. Uh, Takumo, because it's also, like I think, one of these sort of like immersive culture sort of RPGs mm. like that mm-hmm. and Pendragon, which is all about being in a particular place and time and focusing on that uh, as the, the backdrop and, and not just as a backdrop, but like as an integral part, like, you know, in a lot of role-playing games, the setting is more or less just set dressing, you know, like D and D it's just like, there's the kingdom. Don't worry about it. Focus on the monsters you had to kill. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, and that's yeah. okay. That could be our segue into the 90s were a different time, kids. <laughs> because mm. there was this feeling that you had to have a big-ass background. And if you didn't, how were you going to sell supplements? How were you going to have a revenue stream? And I'm, I, you know, I'm sympathetic to this because if you have a game that sells well and people want to buy more supplemental materials for it then great, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to create a whole new game that may succeed or fail. But it does tend to... The, the, the way people proceeded was, okay, uh, I've, you know, I've, I've released D&D. I guess I need to release a bunch of modules for it and a bunch of Adventures and Dungeons. But the problem with Adventures and Dungeons is that only the DMs buy those. So then they're like, oh, well, what about more player option books and more books of spells and, and you know, books of treasure and things that players like? Because it's a much bigger pool. And Splat if books. You ha- 
mm-hmm. splat books. And the splat book apex was White Wolf. And what year did <laughs> what year did first edition Vampire come out? That was ninety one. I was there. Ninety one. And they sold what sold Vampire, what the people who were playing Vampire seemed to really like. They liked getting new powers and new new fiddly bits and new rule stuff. But they also really liked getting new pieces of setting. And it's like, oh, Here's the setting book for Milwaukee, and here's what this particular breakaway faction of vampire malcontents is doing. And that is a lot easier to produce than tight, innovative mechanics. And so there was this expectation by 1998 that, yeah, if you're, you know, when people buy games, they want to have a huge world. They want to have details and know what it smells like when you walk through the marketplace. And they want to know what people's religions and habits are like. And, uh, you know, and I dig that. I, I myself enjoy sitting down to the, like, seven-course meal of setting. But that does not seem to be the way a lot of people are doing it these days. Mm. Because... The modern approach is I want this game to be as short as possible so that it doesn't cost 90 bucks and I don't have to char and and I don't have to deal with a gigantic printing, shipping, editing art <laughs> thing. I want to make a small game, especially if you're starting out. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, if you're indie, I mean, obviously I think yes. I yeah, they they still lean towards the big fuck all uh, uh, book because they can sell. And also it's compatible with fifth head and Hey, here's a whole line of miniatures to go with it. Uh, Yeah. I mean, so the middle as with so much in our modern world, the middle has been eliminated. You are Mm -hmm. either dungeons and dragons, Delta green and other huge full color hardback books sitting on Olympus or, you are uh, a a PDF-only million-dollar soulmate grubbing in the, the puddles at the foot of the hill. Mm-hmm. And there's no middle class. Um, there's a wow. few. I mean, Kickstarter has enabled a, a few, That's I true. think. But it uh, tends to be people, they kickstart the rule book and they'll do a deluxe version, and then they kickstart the next supplement. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep. then there's Monty Cook. <laughs> yeah, um, Monty seems to have it figured out. I, I think so. Yeah, the but yeah, but definitely the splat book market has definitely business model of the '90s has gone away. Do you think this is uh, Outlaws of the Water Margin uh, would have if had it been published would it have gone that way with supplements for you know new spells and new adventures and that it's kind of thing? Very difficult to say. Yeah, Paul talks at one point about writing a supplement for it, but I think he just describes it as a supplement. Yeah, um, I don't think he, he describes it in any more detail than that. Yeah. Um, and in the nineties, it was quite possible. I mean, I mentioned Amber Diceless. Um, Amber Diceless had one supplement. It was a hugely successful role-playing game, blew through tens of thousands of copies more. Um, one supplement in its entire publishing history, plus a, a fanzine. Um, and it was quite possible because sales, there were fewer titles. Therefore, the titles sold more per, you know, per mm. system. Um, you could make a living on that. 
uh, you could you could run a company on it. These days, there's so much product, there's so many names out there. Well, I gave up trying to keep track of role, you know even the mid ground role playing games mm-hmm. years ago. Moreover, with the internet and with everyone being extremely online, if I want to make money from my role playing game writing, I'm not just competing with other professional game writers. I'm competing with the guy who's given it away for free, who, you know, oh yeah, I, I wrote up this 80 page thing working over the course of two years on weekends. I don't really want to make any money off it. I'm just going to stick it up on my website and see if anyone downloads it. Yeah. And, and you're also yeah. competing with every other role-playing game ever published because yeah. they're all up on drive through and, um, you know, some of them at ridiculously low prices. But um, apart from Creeks and Crawdads. What, what is the bee in your bonnet about Creeks <laughs> and Crawdads? You're like... I'm, I'm redesigning it. <laughs> it's, it's a passion project for me. It's All right, okay. Because I think it was Paul who told me this, so it does connect. Sure, Creeks and Crawdads, sure. one of those games that I had, we, you know, word spread around vaguely. Somebody had heard about it or seen a copy. It's a post-apocalypse game. I don't know if you guys know anything about it. I've heard of it. I've heard of it, but I've not seen it. Okay, it's like it's a 24-page Xerox thing. Zocchi might have been involved in publishing it. I think I finally bought my copy from, from Lou Zocchi. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds right. 24-page <laughs> post-apocalypse game. You all play members of the, the most intelligent race surviving the nuclear apocalypse because it came out in the 80s. We were These things were still very much on, on our minds, um, which is to say that you are an intelligent, mutated craw, crawdad. Um Unfortunately, even an intelligent mutated crawdad is still incredibly stupid. Um, And the way it was described to me by, I believe, Paul, is that your character sheet has four or five slots on it for the things you can remember. And if you want to... That was my reaction. That was, that's so good. I have to see this game. It's like Memento, only with radioactive crustaceans. Exactly. So I finally find a copy five years later. Great, this is going to be great. And that mechanic is not in there. So I can only assume that Paul somehow extrapolated from a combination of reading the one paragraph description in someone's fanzine of this thing and just inventing this thing. But what I'm what I am now working on is a a game that does have that mechanic, um, which I don't have a title good don't have a good title for it. My working title is Roach Hotel, um, but it'll be better. Um, that's why I'm thinking a lot about Creeks and Crawdad. Anyway, but that you know as as an example of a, a mechanic that just lies at the center of a game and absolutely defines the gameplay and the tone and the mood, I think Bad Joss does that. I think Bad Joss really sets the tone for the way that water margin characters interact with the world around them because it's not just the way they interact with the, the corrupt bureaucracy that they will be going out as outlaws, but the natural world and the supernatural world around them you have to pay attention to all these details for risk of acquiring further bad jars. It's not a big flashy mechanic, but I just, I really like the tone of it. I think it's well, really this clever. Is, this is why it's good that you actually played the game, because just reading through it, it did not jump out and poke me in the eye as being that central or evocative. Mm-hmm. So that's good it, to know. It does, again, it does remind me of Fate because of that that uh, Fate point um compelling aspects uh, mechanic where GMs can essentially bribe players. Oh, or, or compel them essentially like you 
your your character is superstitious. You have the superstitious aspect. So uh, if you want to walk under the ladder, you have to pay a fate point. Or I'll give you a a, a fate point if you uh, run away or you stop chasing the person because he he runs under a ladder and you dare not follow um or or something like that um and it so yeah it, it, it's almost it would have been interesting to see how this game would have been received and what it would have influenced um had these kind of mechanics been widely distributed um so it, yeah it, it makes you wonder what if uh if this had been seen by a larger public totally yeah but okay, and and are we in are we in the nineties now? Are we talking about the nineties? Um, I'll, I'll just pick up on that point. The, you know, the a shame it's not being seen by by more people. I think if Paul had if it had been published in in the nineties, not by Hogshead because we more or less knew what we were doing. Um, Ouch! I think there's a good chance that it would have kind of disappeared simply mm. because of the, the the setup at that point. There were no ebooks. There were no, you know, almost nobody was selling ebooks in any form in in the nineties. It would have required physical copies. Paul was based in the UK. He lives out in Japan now. Um, uh, I'm I'm still occasionally in contact with him. Um, I've just been going through the uh, the playtester list. There's a name that may not mean much to you guys, but Tim Hartford in the middle of that at the time would have been a student at Oxford, but is now the BBC's Tim Hartford well-known broadcaster known as the undercover economist and best-selling and when i say best-selling i mean literally number one paperback best-selling pop economist in the uk Um, and he play-tested outlaws of the water margin crazy so that doesn't really lead anywhere but i just i wanted to point that out he's also lovely he's a really nice man okay um Brought anyway. chips when you were gaming. Um, um, very probably, yes. Many, many interesting foods were brought. There's a whole page on cuisines in the book. That's, it's that's it's, a '90s thing, man. It is, but again, it's kind of evocative. I remember Paul and a chap called Mike Cool, who uh, who you will have seen on screen because Michael he played Kuehl. the Vogel. Michael Kuehl. Played the Vogon Guard in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy TV adaptation. Um, but he and Paul Mason threw a Tecumel banquet at a games convention. Amazing. Uh, which apparently involved going into the local delicatessen with a £50 note and saying, give me the weirdest foods you have. Um, which were all eaten. And it was just a sublimely delightful role-playing experience. And, uh, yes, so there's a page of cuisines, that, and it just it's evocative. It, it sets a tone, it sets a mood. What would your characters be eating? And it depends very much on the social class. So you get, wow, a full page of that. That's great. And then the next page, there's one page on, here's the sample town where your characters might live. <laughs> one page. I, perhaps I would have prioritised that differently, but the cuisine stuff is just it's lovely. Yeah, if, you're if I Dallas, paid for it, I might be miffed that there was only a page of the time. It's the I, I liked the detail that oh yeah, if you're a Taoist, you don't eat wheat because that feeds the three worms of corruption that live in everybody's body. And I'm like, well, damn. <laughs> well, let me. I made notes. I have notes mm-hmm. about the '90s culture of gaming, and there was much less of a presumption that the GMs and players would cooperate 
and a much greater assumption of sort of an antagonistic stance between them. And you can see that, I think you can see a little of that in here, but also you can see a resistance to it or a recognition that, hey, everybody, this is maybe an unexamined habit we have left over from Tomb of Horrors that things might get better if we examined it a little bit. Because, you know, there are parts where he's like, yeah, maybe just don't have bad faith competition with your GM. Because A, the GM will cream you, but also because B, it's less fun. Mm -hmm. So that, that was, you know, an element... There is the big packed-in references because in the 90s you couldn't just go to Wikipedia and look up what, you know, ancient Chinese measurements were like or military ranks in the Song Dynasty. In terms of the history of our of the hobby in particular, I'm like, mechanics back then were extremely fiddly and riven with special cases. And I think where we've gotten to now, there was... Was there ever really a, a a hard overcorrection of that where it's just like super simple games that were never huge? I mean, people tried and got, di- and that's where we, we got the derisive phrase magical tea party. But what this says to me is that complexity is not necessarily bad if it's fascinating complexity. Chess and the emergent complexity of chess persistently fascinate people because it does give you something meaty to sink your brain into. But the problem of a lot of 90s design was people going, oh, I love this. I love the intricacy of this part. I'm going to make everything the intricate part. And I think Mm. what we've moved to now a little bit more is a, a situation where it's like, yeah, The game is about X, so the rules about X are going to be very intricate and tactical and absorb your attention and be the thing you want to keep pawing at. But all this other stuff can just be handled very simply. As sort of a a preview of coming uh, attractions, we're doing Lancer at some point, and Mm -hmm. I've just started looking at it, and it looks like, yeah, there is a hard division between... Here's the part that's fiddly, where you shoot each other. And here's the part that's not fiddly, which is everything else. So, there it is. Uh, You know, that is a lesson I feel like we've learned, is the management of rule density. And that it is a resource that is good when you want it and bad when you don't want it, and that a lot of good design is knowing the difference between the two and using it sparingly. Sound right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, in, in general, I think a game that knows what it wants to do and focuses on that is a mu- in a much better position than what a lot of games are, which are like, I, it can do everything, and, mm. and it doesn't yep. really work. Even GURPS, like says here here don't implement every single system we have presented to you you'll go mad you'll go mad like if you want to make don't put mass combat and organization rules in a game that's not about that even though we have these rules in groups so i think outlaws does it's very focused on again being this particular time and place and this culture 
Parts of it yeah. are too fiddly. For the parts, of, yeah, the rules are too fiddly. Like it does, uh, it does have mass combat rules, yeah. um, as as you were just saying. But then there's also a thing that your player character is assumed to have a bunch of followers and acolytes who will mm-hmm. follow them around. There's some discussion of that. I will say that everything in there is in there because Paul thought uh, had a reason for it to be there. He was a guy who had written extensively about structuring role playing games creating evocative mm-hmm. rules and stuff. He wasn't just somebody who sat down and wrote a, a, a game about something he loved. He had thought a great deal about the craft of creating and running particularly culture-based evocative role-playing experiences. Um, and I think, although this is very much of its time, it is a very good example of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it does what it does very well. Our last section is, instead of why people play it that way, uh, because uh, this game is very hard to find, and very f- people, very few people heard about it, except for those who were around for you know the playtesting, and <laughs> maybe personally knew the author. Uh, the uh, Greg had the great idea of well, if I ran the water margin, um, here's how I would remodel it. Here's how I would redo it. And uh, for me, uh, obviously, I think. Uh, the first thing I would do is honestly, actually, I, I, I keep going back to fate. I just keep, I was, I kept being reminded of fate in <laughs> terms of, of the, the skills and the aptitudes and just then it, it very much felt like a fate game or, and again, that would make it far more marketable and also just make it a lot easier for people to run. Um, because you, you fate has a pretty standardized way of dealing with, you know, fighting and challenges and obstacles and it it just it just it just works um and i would definitely i'm not an expert in um the chinese uh literature or history so i would i would definitely find an expert in this to sort of verify it i mean it everything in it it seems like it was very written very um like with an eye to detail with someone who knows the material well, but I am a layperson when it comes to this, so I wouldn't know. So, um, and that's sort of the core of this game is getting this material accurately and in, in an interesting way to, to, to role play it. So, um, so I would cut back on the rules, make it fate and expand, uh, more of the culture material and, and, you know, sort of get a, get a second person to like, double check it you know and like uh expand upon it because again this this feels like this is like the pre this is a uh like we mentioned before that it's not edited you know this is a personal work that was not published so um and yeah so that that i i don't have a whole lot else other than that is is make it fade and get get a historian um to to look over it and uh, uh make a pass on it uh james how would how would you uh, uh since you were so close to doing it <laughs> I mean, that's the thing for me this is part of my my role-playing history admittedly it's not a hazy part yeah. not least because there was there was often a haze in the room let's put it that way yeah. it's, oh those are good evenings um and and chinese or japanese beer as well and and good food Deep Food. Um, <laughs> oh, I've, I've entirely forgotten one thing about the, the whole '90s thing. Um, it's I mentioned it was Thatcherite London, um, and Britain was a very grey place at, at the time. Um, I think there's an element of that 
within the game, whether Paul intended it or not. But this idea of being heroic outcast pushed down by this bureaucratic system uh, and this intensely hierarchical thing that people bribed their way up to, it's... There were elements, there were scandals within the Thatcherite government that, of course, dwarfed by the scandals we have now. But at the time, it felt like the country was being run by a corrupt regime and um, was squashing the life out of it. And it was the interesting stuff. It was the people who were kind of pushed to the edges of society that were doing the interesting re rebellion. I think there are overtones of, of that. In it. I think that may be, certainly in the UK, that's a Tommy Lee thing. That's, that's something yeah, yeah. that mood is kind of coming back. Regardless of what's about to happen in football this weekend, um, it will mean nothing to the American, but uh, to everyone. <laughs> nope, there's, not there's, a there's football, thing. all football, all the time. When you said in Thatcherite London, it felt like you were at the mercy of an arbitrary and deeply corrupt, uh, homogenizing regime. In my, it's a podcast, so you can't see it, but I'm making scare quotes with my fingers around felt like <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway but what would i do with it what would i do with the game i would i'd give it the editorial pass that i i wanted to give it in the late 90s i'd re, i'd restructure a lot of it um i would put an easy in in there i think the problem with a lot of culture games not so much this one, but definitely stuff like Skyrealms of Jerune, Empire of the Petal Throne, is there is, and, and RuneQuest, I mean, the, the ur-father of, of great culture games. There is so much to digest for a newcomer to, to this world. Um, it's really difficult for a new player, let alone a new GM, to understand enough about not just the structure of the world, but how it works and how to run a game in it. It needs a kind of a gentle in. And mm -hmm. Empire of the Petal Throne, the original one, has one of the best intros, um, which is that in the in the standard, I believe, in the TSR box set that came out in the mid-70s, you start off not as a citizen of uh, the Soliani Empire, which is, the, loosely speaking, the Roman Empire with more weird aliens and magic um, and no metal. It's It's great, trust me. It's brilliant. But there's so much depth of culture in there. You don't start off as part of that. You start off as a barbarian from Hyderabad, the barbarous lands to the south, who has come to seek their fortune in, you know, because you've heard the lands, the streets are paved with, not gold, there isn't any gold, you know, whatever metal it is. Um, it's been a long time since I've played Emperor of the Petal Throne. I may be weak on the details. Mm -hmm. Um, so the game, the first scenario literally starts as your ship docks at Jakala, the Great Harbour, and you step out, and everything is alien to your character, just as it is alien to you, the player. So it's an excuse to kind of walk slowly through understanding oh, yeah. the way this society works. A tutorial game. It's yeah. Very much. It's a tutorial scenario. And it's a, you know, I've nicked that opening so many times mm -hmm. to introduce new role players to how the whole thing works that is the approach i took with termination shock is that you know human beings are cosmic hayseeds from a backwater who were just rescued from a disaster and dumped in the <laughs> cosmic equivalent of new jersey and the guy who the alien guy who was supposed to acclimate you to everything kind of fucked off on the job because they were all just volunteers so all they do is is give you the 
hyperspace equivalent of a cell phone, and they're like, oh, uh, I guess you could live in that section of this weird space station. Bye! <laughs> yeah, it's been it, very, very fun. That's that's my moment of self-promotion. That's that's fine. We're all allowed them from time to time. Um, but yeah, but I think Outlaws of the Water Margin relies slightly on the, the players being at least partly familiar with this world of... Mm particular style of historical fantasy Chinese culture, um, which is not the same that you get certainly in the modern day. You know, uh, this is not Jet Li's style of, of, of fantasy or uh, Jackie Chan's. This is much more this very particular style of thing. And, I'm, you know, I'm sure they've remade several monkey movies recently. They do not have the same tone as the 70s monkey at all. Mm-hmm. Um I'd I'd broaden it slightly. I'd make it more a kind of, you know, Chinese historical myth thing. I'd probably take the power levels up a bit so you could be monkey. Everyone wants to be monkey. Monkey's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's an awful lot of – and I'd take out some of the minor mechanics, I think. But otherwise, I'd leave an awful lot of it as it is. Um, I think it hangs together. Um, I think it is a little bit old-fashioned, but that doesn't make it by any means unplayable. And I, I just, I was filled with nostalgia as, as I read it and not just, uh-huh. you know, for a particular time, but for the style of play, for the fun we had with it mm. um, and for the stories we told with it. I, I really want to thank our, our backer. I hadn't thought about the water, water margin for a while. <laughs> and this was a really lovely excuse to go back to it and, and to, um, you know, it evoked an awful lot of very fun memories. So that see that's very different from my approach. Um, first off, because I have no nostalgia for the way it was. Uh, very recently, actually, I've been talking about nostalgia with people and realizing that I do not experience it the way other people do. For me, nostalgia is almost universally painful. Even thinking about happy times from the past, I. I to me, feels like looking into the coffin at an open casket funeral. So I, I'm like, yeah, is there any point in the past that I don't hate? And I'm like, wow, yeah, I really pretty much just am, am driving with the hammer down and never looking in the rear view. That's my, my psychological <laughs> uh, uh, setup. And so for me, it, it, you know, if you handed this to me, Looking at the rules, I would put away the editorial scalpel and get out the editorial chainsaw. Uh, a lot of the special cases would just be gone. Uh, everything, like if it's not fights, magic stuff, or socialization, it's radically simple. I would almost be like, if it's not in those three categories, just flip a coin. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, make everything you can, you know, try and drag it into one of those three arenas. Um, I would get rid of energy, the the limiting factor on how many skills you can throw in to make things simpler. And I would say every ability just makes ease one more. So if you can get eight abilities in play, now it's plus eight to the ease. I would probably rename difficulty as ease with the idea that, yeah... Ease 12 sounds easier than Ease 2. 
in in the text, it's called difficulty, and it seems counterintuitive to me that difficulty 12 is easier than difficulty 2. It's like those old negative 10 armor classes being mm-hmm. good. So I would I would <laughs> do that. I'd rename that. And the trick would be, I'm like, yeah, rope in as many abilities as you can and describe, but you have to describe narratively why you get to use them. And in my mind, I have this vague, cloudy picture of a character sheet with, it's not a list of abilities in the combat track. It's like a tree where it's like, okay, in order to throw someone, I need to grapple them first, which means I need to use coordination more than strength. And, you know, if I, if I'm using that, I can't use this, but I can, you know, there's, there's some skills that you can't use all the time. There's some with cooldowns. There's some where you have to do this one with it. There's others where you can't do these two together. And I do that for socialization to building in all of the, uh, the, the face mechanics and the reputation and the social class. And, you know, are you older or younger than this person who owes whom respect, uh, and, you know, I'd try and get that all in so that that is just as exciting as the combat stuff where it's like, okay, I'm going to convince this magistrate to let me off and I'm going to pull in my pleading ability, but also my low social status and the family connection I have to him. But that, you know, even though I'm a lowly peasant farmer, I'm also known as a good filial, filially pious son and, you know, so the ease is is way up high and now I roll. And do mm-hmm. the same thing with magic where at the, the base of that sort of flow tree I'm envisioning is all the random superstitious stuff that everyone does. And then way down deep in it, you get Taoist immortals and Buddhists uh, turning demons, you know, showing demons the error of their ways and making them come over to the light side. That's how I'd... And it would probably not feel very much like Outlaws of the Water March. <laughs> but I suppose that is because I am more of a game designer and less of a historian of Chinese literature. <laughs> yeah. I can only be as God made me. Yep. Um... Yeah, so that's three different ways. Of, uh, uh, so, um, yeah, if Paul uh, is listening to this episode, uh, maybe you should think re- reconsider your your. Um, I think if this was released now, there there would there. Who knows? Uh, certainly, it could be a print on demand PDF. Uh, if nothing, a print on demand book and PDF, if nothing else, but. Yeah, the Chinese literature in that era is sort of like a blind spot, and it's not something that. It's not because I'm not interested. I am interested. It's just, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. So I would welcome uh, more uh, chances to explore history and literature through this uh, kind of game. I'm, I'm just going to jump in and say for anyone who's thinking of running a game in, in China or using Chinese myth, even if you're not going to use the rules of, of Outlaws of the Water Margin, um, there's so much great reference material in there. It is... Paul Safari was not a, a scholar of, of Chinese literature or, or anything like that, um, but it is really well-researched. There's an awful lot of lovely detail in there about social hierarchies, the different styles of magic, 
all you know from the books but also from that style of cinema as well mm-hmm. um and it doesn't cost anything it is if you just google outlaws of the water margin rpg that should take you to the google drive i've just dug it up myself it, it is it is literally it's a google uh, drive file um uh, and it's a, a pdf 200 page pdf you don't have to pay anything for it. Mm-hmm. um yeah I, I as i say i'm still in contact with paul um I will encourage him to make it more widely available somewhere uh, in, in some form. Um, cool. Uh, so I think that concludes this episode. Again, I would like to thank our backer, uh, Christian Bickley, uh, and his friends, uh, Nathaniel, Paul, Ben, and Jordan for, uh, certainly I hope this, uh, hopefully your, your experiences of nostalgia, Christian are, are a little better than Greg's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's only uh, now occurring to me that like, this is not normal. Lots of people like nostalgia. Not mm-hmm. everyone looks at their past. Like it's a field full of undetonated landmines. Um, it drives yeah. a lot of RPG sales. Nostalgia. Oh, There's a sure. huge appetite for well, not, I mean, not just RPGs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. And that, in that, in that, perhaps uniquely in that sense, mm-hmm. I'm totally okay with it. Um, but our next episode, uh, as we mentioned briefly on here, will be Lancer, the mecha uh, sci-fi tactical combat focused RPG from Massive Press, uh, based the the creators behind the webcomic Kill Six Billion Demons. It is beautifully uh, Lancer is a beautifully illustrated, very weird uh, sci-fi RPG game. Um, I am I've uh, so I'm looking forward to our discussion on that. Um, we have uh, I've played it once. I am thinking about running it again, uh, running it myself. Um, but it it uh, has a lot of interesting elements to it. Uh, for example, it has a uh, app that people can use to manage things, um, and uh, so yeah, that'll that that's what we'll be working on next. I will post an update on our Kickstarter when we have a better idea of when that's going to be released. Um, probably with when I release this episode. Um, <laughs> so by the time you're in, to check the Kickstarter for when we uh, get a better idea. Um, and then of course, once we release Lancer, I'll have a poll up. Um, but I think that. Uh, about wraps up this episode so uh thanks for listening yeah thanks for listening good times many thanks thanks for the chance to talk about this one note during a break when recording this episode james started talking about the uk game scene i've included it here after the main episode enjoy i could talk for literally hours about this stuff a lot of interesting stuff came out of those groups and a lot of interesting um we, we would play at conventions um, because the UK is small. We have the advantage of being small. So everyone is, you know, oh, that's a convention in Leicester. Oh, that's 150 miles. You know, you can jump on a coach and be there in two hours. So there were a lot of people who were seeing each other regularly and just not so much deliberately setting out to push the boundaries of what could be done with role play, but to have a good time and just, you know, muck around. And mm-hmm. um, I remember one game at in Warwick University. I can't remember the convention. But it was like a day-long game, and it was a film festival. And people split up into teams and role-played themselves as members of this kind of this film crew and came up with and made, which is to say described, the movie that they were going to make. And then they then there was a screening, which is to say we all got on stage and acted out bits of it, and there was a presentation. And so it wasn't in any way a conventional role-playing game, but it was huge fun. Um, and... 
I mean, actually, one of my kind of formative role-playing experiences was in a game with, with Paul. Um, it's a big Empire of the Petal Throne game. I think there mm-hmm. must have been 12 people or so there. And we were all having a big kind of planning meeting. And I looked up and realized that Paul and his co-GM had left the room. They had gone to go and cook lunch. <laughs> and they spent half an hour cooking lunch. And the game just continued without them. For me, that was mind-blowing. Just the idea that that could work. Mm-hmm. Even because I'd come out of a very GM-centric tradition of role, traditional role playing, the people I'd role played with did so in a very GM-centric way. The idea that you didn't even need the GM, that it was enough to ha- if if everyone was present within the game world and understood its constraints, as long as nobody was going to go, let's start rolling some dice. Mm-hmm. Possibly even then, and it, it just it was great stuff, but. There wasn't really an outlet for it. There wasn't much of a, a UK press at that time. There wasn't, um, you know, there were fanzines, there were yeah. convention games, but there was no way of bringing it to a wider market. I mean, we're still several years before any kind of, of interesting use of the internet or widespread use of the internet. And and no ways of getting, getting published because one thing that um, people discovered really quite quickly is that the UK scene in the early late 80s to early 90s once games workshop had stopped doing role-playing games the market for role-playing games in the uk was not large enough to support a company that wanted to actually make a go of it on a professional level (laughs) don't worry and a number of companies tried it and and went bust or almost went bust um the only one i remember is um actually slay industries nightfall games who survived Uh by being bought out by wizards of the coast to become wizards of the coast uk um but I, Hogshead Publishing was the one that made the difference, he says, blowing his own trumpet, because um, I worked out a different business model, which was do not focus on the UK market. The UK market is tiny, pretends to be an American company. So we printed everything in America, warehoused in America, priced everything in dollars, and sold primarily to the American Canadian market, which was an order of magnitude larger. And that was enough money to keep us going. Um, and then that was a... Other companies picked up that same business model, um, notably Mongoose, who were, uh, you know, rode that, surfed that wave of D twenty um, stuff. <laughs> oh um, man, yeah, that, uh, I that, uh, the wave was made of, but yeah, yeah, um, D twenty shovelware, man. That's yeah, Mongoose, <sighs> yeah, in, in a nutshell. <laughs> I, but yeah, but but that was kind of where the scene was in the in the early nineties. A lot of really interesting creative people.
If you're a Taoist, sorry, you I talked eat... to you. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> We're talking over each other. We'll get it straight. Russ will fix it in post. Uh, but 